Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast where we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, it's going alright, thanks Ed. I'm fully recovered uh, from the thing and Mm -hmm. uh, still just riding high on that to be perfectly honest. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I still have not caught COVID, you know, fingers crossed. Keep that streak going. No, I did have just the worst um, allergies on late Thursday and through all of Friday. My head just felt so fuzzy and it was just, it's it's just the worst because it's like, you're not feeling bad enough that you feel like you can take the day off work. Like you don't feel ill. Yeah. It's just that everything feels really laborious and everything seems really annoying to you. Um, so just like every time I had to like answer a question that someone had at work, every time I had to do something, it all just kind of kept constantly feeling like a real imposition just because my head was not, it didn't clear until like, literally until like 11 o'clock at night. And then I was like, okay, cool, great. Yeah, what can I do? And then, you know, I sat and finished reading a David Peace book until uh, the early hours of the morning, which are, you know, not the worst way to try and recover from my head just being completely fogged up for a full day but yeah still kind of felt like uh yeah cheap a cheap shot from the trees <laughs> and all that pollen <laughs> they're fighting back ed i mean we we haven't been treating them that well for a little while mm. i'm sorry mm-hmm. <laughs> uh yeah that that uh, funnily enough that w- will relate to something we'll talk about in the title of the topic oh um, i think i can guess what it is <laughs> But before then, we'll go over some news. Um, our first news story for this week is kind of us um, circling back to something from a few weeks ago, which was an article uh, in Vulture called The Undoing of Joss Whedon by uh, Leela Shapiro, which was uh, it was a real Harry Nilsson situation in that everyone was talking about it online. And at the time, I think it kind of broke a week we weren't recording, so... Um, we didn't discuss it at the time, but we wanted to talk about it now because the dust has kind of settled a little bit and feels like we can look at this all anew because what was interesting about it was it was a, it was a piece uh, that was an interview or you know compiled of several interviews with Joss Whedon, the creator of Buffy, Angel, Firefly, director of the Avengers, and a man who has had multiple uh, accounts of misconduct and bad you know quite terrible abusive behavior uh leveled against him in recent years and you know it led to this thing that has really been kind of happening over the course of the last two or three years where people like share all these stories about him and you know they're right to do so because obviously you know he does seem to have been someone who is incredibly cruel to a lot of people he worked for he had inappropriate sexual relations with various actresses on shows he worked on and he had all these bad things but what was interesting about the interview as well was that a lot of people seemed to assume that it was trying to exonerate him and that it was in some way try as opposed to when I read it and I reread it today just to kind of reaffirm up my impression of it it felt more like more like the interviewer was going in there and just trying to talk to him about these allegations against him and to talk about the his perspective on 
these accounts of how tough and cruel he was to work for, but not necessarily going in and trying to say none of this is true. It was very much felt more like going in and then in some cases giving him enough rope to hang himself with because they're really it it really didn't come across positively for him. Like it, it wasn't a as some people portrayed of as a kind of a puff piece that went badly. It definitely felt like someone really trying to interrogate a man who is for better or worse very important to modern popular culture who worked on various things that have had a long impact and who also in the process of making those things seemed to make a lot of people's lives incredibly difficult and miserable the cancelling of joss whedon just gets earlier every year don't you think mm-hmm. Ed? because mm. this is not the first time that any of this has surfaced no. and i agree with you i think more than anything this is an attempt to collate and affirm what's been reported quite disparately over, I think, maybe five years was when it really started to sort of gather pace. And I think it was mainly after Whedon stepping in for Zack Snyder and mm, that kind of, yeah. you know, and, and <laughs> it's just wild ed how it's so many people over so many years that have come forward and i think to say that this was a puff piece that went wrong is kind of like saying that interview with robert durst was just you know a chance for him (laughs) to tell his side of the story i think it's really excellent reporting Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. incredibly revealing about joss whedon the man without even the context or the um you know multiple on the record accounts of what Whedon has done. It's um it'll be interesting to see if this actually does kind of stop him from being able to be in positions of power where he can abuse people again. Mm. Um because there's various factors at play here in that I think there is not really a current Whedon fan base. You know, people aren't saying like, oh, what's the next Whedon thing? Like, I think that's very much gone. There is still a very understandably strong love for Buffy, which the fan base, I think, will own themselves and not let it be tainted through the hypocrisy mm. um, of showrunner versus show. And again, it's just thinking back to things like the... Uh, much ado about nothing that he shot at his house with like the mm. recurring cast and I remember my review of that being fuck your house Joss Whedon and <laughs> <laughs> because that's it he just he's everything about him is smart and the kind of the loaded geekness of him and again always trying to appear as if he's sharing power rather than wielding it oh just out and out creep Ed. But, you know, he has been at the helm of things that in the past have been very successful. And he could also do like an alt right turn, or he'll just take all of his money and go away quietly. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. But I do feel that as someone who is now not on social media, I find it interesting to kind of measure the parabola 
of stories and when they gather pace and then when they go quiet because I was even aware of this I think I was probably uh, in the thick of having that Omicron and mm. even <laughs> even I was kind of vaguely aware of this going on and I couldn't tell you how I found out but I did but now there's not a lot happening um, it, it's uh, it's also kind of a weird one because I'm not sure how many projects he was currently involved in to then be dropped from you know and again uh, does anyone know what's happening with Army Hammer like is this is this stuff happening you know Angle Elsor was in West Side Story and and everyone seems to think this is fine it it's a frustrating time, but I wonder, and I hope that because the beauty of this reporting is, as you said, enough rope to hang himself with. There was not actually, you know, it could not be spun as a baying mob. This mm. was, you know, verified accounts over years and the, hor the horrible things that he's abusive in so many different directions for so many different um, reasons, right? And I hope that this just means that there is, <laughs> shall we just say, uh, it's not a cancellation, we've just clicked off auto-renew. Mm, yeah. Our next story is something altogether more uh, pleasant uh, and certainly something that set um, every segment of film Twitter off into paroxysms of delight when it was announced, which was the news that David Lynch has been cast in Steven Spielberg's next movie, uh, The Fablemans, which is a sort of semi-autobiographical movie about Spielberg's life growing up in Arizona, uh, I believe, where uh, previously, you know, it's been announced that Paul Dano's playing his dad, and that it's going to be about him, I think, when he was um, a teenager. Currently, the role that he's been cast in has not been announced the theory that emerged very quickly though is that if you're looking at this period in steven spielberg's life one of the big seminal events um from his teenage years was him getting to meet uh, john ford the um iconic film director of many westerns but also many other kinds of movies but you know he jokingly referred himself as being a guy who makes westerns and Ford at that point, particularly if you look at like interviews of him with um, the like the interviews that Peter Bogdanovich did with him, he has a Lynchian quality to them to him. You know, he was kind of like a, a crusty old man who didn't suffer fools gladly. And it's the theory is that he'll be playing John Ford basically, mm. or you know, a John Ford type if it's not so closely linked to um, history as that. Um, but I. I'm very excited by this. I enjoy Lynch a great deal as an actor. You know, obviously he's great as Gordon Cole. I enjoyed him in Lucky, the movie he made, uh, or, or the movie that he was casting alongside Harry Dean Stanton, where he had kind of a few beautiful scenes. Un unfortunate, um, in, as it is in retrospect, but he was great in that one season of Louis, where he uh, tries to help him get the Tonight Show. Yeah, he's a, a actor, I think, who has a distinctive edge and charisma to him you know obviously like no one really took talks and acts and sounds like david lynch uh so i think it'll be fascinating to see what happens um when he is put into what feels like you know something so different from 
the work that Lynch himself does and that he himself directs himself doing. I mean, I know what I hope for, which probably isn't going to happen, but for Lynch to just kind of do an avant-garde spin on Stevie's script and just end up playing Spielberg, looking back on his life, Mm. It's just nice. I am someone who is not a huge fan of Spielberg, but I absolutely love the documentary about Spielberg, particularly his parents. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether David Lynch will end up voicing the monkey that I think (laughs) Steven Spielberg's mum brought home, uh, I don't know. Um, But, oh, yeah, I'm there. I like to think that David Lynch was watching The Mandalorian, saw Werner Herzog and was like, I want some of that. And he's, I don't know whether uh, in terms of his acting, he's able to be anyone other than himself, but you can <laughs> say that of a lot of actors and I'm not sure if I mind it. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait. <laughs> and finally this week in terms of news, the Oscar nominations are coming out on Tuesday as we record this. By the time people hear this, the nominations will already be out. But I wanted to take a a minute or two just to talk about what we're hopeful for. I think for me, I really want um, West Side Story to do well out of it. Particularly, um, I would really love if uh, Rachel Ziegler gets the Best Actress nomination. I think she's so fantastic as Maria um, and she really holds that movie together. Um, Although I don't think she's done as well in the precursor awards to to get in there. But... um, Someone who does seem to be uh, very strongly in the running and maybe even a favourite at this point is Ariana DeBose, who plays Zanita and is, you know, I said in our best of 2021 episode that that whole movie just feels like every time someone appears for the first time, it's like, oh my God, I'm discovering a new movie star, like instantly everyone in that movie, bar the aforementioned Ansel Elgort, really pops. Um, But I think she because it's a role that's so full of comic comedy and light in the first half and then is kind of very uh has a kind of a real seriousness in the final moments of the movie that just feels like the easiest role to reward anyone in the cast with the nomination for so uh i would love if she gets a nomination because i do think that she is just absolutely uh luminous in that role I see. The thing is, I still feel so behind as I typically do around this time of year because the way that the um, release schedules theatrically in the US and the UK, there's normally a bit of a lag. Um, Mm. But for obvious reasons, there's more of one um, at the moment. And there's so much I'd love to see. And it's odd to kind of predict without any kind of... um, preference but all i will say is that i would absolutely love the wild card of richard iowadi getting best supporting actor for the souvenir part two Mm. because i've only seen the trailer and based on that (laughs) he deserves it sorry everyone else yeah i haven't had a chance to see souvenir part two yet because it came and went from theaters here and it still isn't available to rent or buy digitally um but everything i've seen or heard of it set has people saying that he's a real standout in that i mean he was he was great in the first one as well and like the two scenes that he was in but um yeah i'm always happy for more uh Ayawadi. i think i would also because i saw it yesterday i would love to see licorice pizza do well um 
I feel like PTA has been sort of nibbling at the edges of the Oscars for his last few movies. You know, the last time one of his movies was really truly embraced was uh, There Will Be Blood. You know, the master got uh, acting nominations and he occasionally picks up a writing screenplay here and there. But I think it would be really great if that movie, which I think is so warm and human and so funny, um, if that could kind of pick up some, if he could get a Best Picture nomination, which I think is, is very likely with The Field of Ten, if he could get a uh, director and writing, and if, you know, uh, Alana Haim as Best Actress, I think would be uh, a wonderful thing to see, because I think she's so great. Cooper Hoffman as well is such a absolute amazing, uh, gives such an amazing performance in that movie. Uh, and then there's like a wealth of people you could put pick for the supporting categories. Um, yeah, I'd really like to see that film do well uh, in no small part because I feel like that and West Side Story are both in a stage in their release where they're still in a decent number of theatres. So if they can start putting ads out saying like nominated for seven Oscars or whatever, mm. maybe that could turn around their fortunes so that they could you know maybe get a second lease of life or at the very least, you know, get checked out when they hit home media. Mm. So we'll go on to the main topic for this week and it is bad movies that we can't stop thinking about this came about as an idea because a few weeks ago i was watching i decided to look watch the bruce lee movies that i'd never seen the sort of the big major ones from sort of 72 to 73 which was the kind of the movies that made him a big star right before he died and as part of that i watched game of death which is the movie that he started making before Enter the Dragon and then abandoned production on in order to go and make Enter the Dragon because, you know, that was a big Hollywood production and that was something that he felt uh, correctly that it would be a thing that would really break him as a star in the West. And he died before he could go back and complete the movie. So a few years after he died, a selection of some of his collaborators including Sammo Hung who had worked with him on a few movies and Robert Klaus who had directed Enter the Dragon took the 30 something minutes of footage that he had shot for Game of Death edited it down to about 10 or 15 minutes that they put at the end of the film and then they constructed the rest of the film around that finale of actual Bruce Lee and of course the problem with that is then they have 80 minutes of the movie they have to fill in where they don't have Bruce Lee and the way in which they do that is using a succession of unconvincing body doubles who don't yeah it's unfair to say that it was hard that they couldn't find people who had the same physique as Bruce Lee because uh he was in incredible <laughs> incredible shape and it would be very hard to find someone who could fulfill that exact role but even within those standards whenever you see the back of someone and it just looks like a normal human back. It's not rippling with muscles. You think, okay, that's that's definitely not Bruce Lee. That is definitely someone else. Uh, they also do things like have him wear a helmet for a good part of the movie, wear large sunglasses so that you don't see his face. At one point, hilariously, in order to make it seem like the Bruce Lee character is looking in a mirror while someone is talking to him, they just cut out an image of Bruce Lee's face and stick it to the mirror. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> which... Uh, I, 
as I was watching it, I thought, oh, that seems that seems weirdly advanced that they would do that because I thought it was some sort of digital, not digital, but you know, some sort of editing trick where they must have taken a shot from a previous movie and superimposed it over. But then I read upon it afterwards, and they said, nope, it was just cardboard stuck to a mirror, and then they filmed the scene. And it is, by and large, I think quite quite a bad movie. You can really see the scenes, the the action is pretty good in places because Tano Hung choreographed it and he was a great and he is as you know a great choreographer of action but the the guys they have filling in for Bruce Lee just don't have any of his charisma but it's sort of a it's a philosophically very interesting movie because you're watching it and you're just torn between the question of like okay these are collaborators people who knew bruce lee wanting to honor his legacy so they're trying to complete his final film but also they're clearly exploiting his memory because by that point he was an icon and they knew that they would be able to sell this movie and make a huge amount of money also some of his collaborators didn't want to be involved kareem abdul jabbar who shot scenes for the finale didn't come back because he felt it was disrespectful to bruce lee's memory and it it does feel like such a a hodgepodge but it is it is fascinating to think of and and uh, and as a cultural object and as something as part of the legacy of Bruce Lee the, the the fact that he was so big that this movie that was just hung around a tiny sliver of actual footage of him was a huge hit when it came out and continues to be you know part of his legacy it is fascinating and it's a movie i haven't really stopped thinking about since then i keep constantly thinking back to what a strange object it is and so i thought it would be fun to talk about other movies that we don't like because we don't think they're very good but which also we just can't stop thinking about it because there's just something about them that won't won't let us go so so emily what have you brought as, as uh, some examples for you oh well insert daniel craig in knives out gif here um <laughs> i think your starting example is so good because it hits various different points as to why these films stay with us. Because like mm. you say, it's philosophically interesting. It's like, how did this get made? Should it even really be made? If, if both of those, then why is it being made like this? Mm. And I think for me, I have sort of various categories of these films where I think first off, I managed to identify a couple of recent films that I would describe as um, cynical social justice cash-ins. So I think two films that I keep thinking about a lot recently, both made in the past five years, are The Circle Uh and I Care A Lot. Solid two star experiences for me. Both really quite bad. I Care A Lot was received pretty well. Um, the Circle was not. Um, the Circle is for, for people who may be getting confused because there's also a show uh, that was called The Circle that I think was a much bigger hit. Yes. The Circle is the one where it's sort of a. Uh, it's a f- sort of fictional Apple and Tom Hanks is a sort of fictional Steve Jobs. Am I right in thinking that? Yes, absolutely. So this is a fake Silicon Six um, mm-hmm. in which very money struggled 
Emma Watson manages to get an entry level customer service job and things aren't as rosy as it seems in the augmented reality because the mm-hmm, thing about mm-hmm. the circle is the, the thing that fucks me off is that they got Tom Hanks as the head of this company and that is genius casting let's take mm. the nicest most charming man and put him in the position of the villain because I haven't seen Tom Hanks play nasty ever, really. Like, up against it, stressed, yeah, but he is like a hero within which the external circumstances make him understandably a little bit tense. And the fact that this is so underutilised really annoyed me because there are, like, (laughs) it's a bumpy ride because there are so many plot holes that are not filled Like, it astounds me that anyone read the script and went, yeah. But at the same time, I can understand enough people being like, oh, big tech, we should really look at how this is going to vibe with certain markets, but then makes an incredibly glossy and unappealing to who I think that film would actually, the the themes of that film would be appealing to. Mm. Um. It has all of the timbre of like the 80s and 90s thrillers that are so close to my heart. Like, so I, I really enjoyed it, even though it is bad. It's so bad. And it's a real kind of, aha, rabbit out of the hat. We've managed to solve everything. We're all okay. And it veers into moments of kind of like, oh, what would it be like if everyone was always sort of, you know, under surveillance? And it feels like someone, <laughs> and ironically enough, it feels like a bot wrote it. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone put Google into Google and everything exploded. But I can't stop thinking about it because it's such a valid theme. But I haven't managed to find anything that can incorporate or even like scratch the surface of that I think because films and tv are so intricately part of that whole machine as well it's Mm. it's the same issue that I had with devs which was just like oh my god like everyone said the cinematography was amazing and it's like all I can see is Alex Garland's belly button sorry um (laughs) as much as I love seeing Nick Offerman with a big bushy beard as anyone else um, and I care a lot is again that kind of oh let's take on big uh, people like doing a capitalism about care in America and it's also got the kind of I don't think this is the queer representation that we're fighting for and it's not to say that lesbians can't be psychopaths too i mean we've all enjoyed killing eve but it just feels really disjointed and what could have been quite interesting i think as a series is smushed into a film Mm. because i think as a series you could get a kind of anti call my agent like you can have different cases you can have this kind of the wire sense of the build-up it can be succession because Succession wouldn't work as a film. 
think about it like the the whole joy of succession is within the ever complicated shifting dynamics and loyalties between all of these characters like Shakespeare plays along people <laughs> like Shakespeare was writing TV not films um and I think both of those are like oh swing and a miss but I think I care a lot annoyed me because more than the circle which was just so giddily naive because I care a lot was trying to be incredibly edgy and in my face and I was like no thank you please step away from my face so that's a, a first big chunk of category but I feel Ed actually come to think of it when you suggested the subject for this episode it's like do I only ever think about bad films like <laughs> good films I'm just like mm-hmm, yeah num, 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 thank you and I'll sort of wonder about them and be in awe but I think the thing is, is that we're bamboozled by these. So they give our brains more to nosh on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I think with movies that are in some way flawed or that have good ideas poorly executed, it's hard not to think about them more and think either, how could this be better? Because I like what this is going for. Or, or just to make fun of them, you know, that, that it, just to think about, God, that really was terrible and to joke about it. You know, that's that's the appeal. That's why Mystery Science Theatre is so great, mm. because there's, there's something just so enjoyable about watching people make fun of something for its foibles and its flaws and its failings in a way that is also really, in certainly in Mystery Science Theatre's case, that is, is also quite warm and understands you know it's hard to make a movie sometimes they don't work out and even the movies that are completely devoid of technical skill uh have real people making them and and are trying to do something with it which is why i think those are the ones i actually don't think about that much just because i think okay this this person made a thing that they clearly weren't that skilled to make but that yeah, there's nothing I find particularly offensive or worthy of massive derision about it. Like I don't find myself thinking about the room all that often, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it is a very fun movie to watch, and the many many technical failings of the room do make it really fun to certainly to watch with other people. Yeah, and some things can be perplexing rather than harmful. Yeah, I think that's generally how I feel about bad films because I think. The majority of culture is not as, how do I put this? There are some very toxic elements out there, but I don't think that's true for the majority of output. Um, mm. And I don't want to take us too off topic, but for me, these are films that are bad, not ne- not because I disagree with them. Um, right, sure. So, so, for example, like Limitless. Oh. 10, 10 years ago, 2011, remember that? Um, because Limitless is pointed to a lot of sort of kicking off the wider interest in nootropics. But mm. actually watching Limitless, it's like, this is like as classic morality cautionary tale as you can get. But I found it, I, I was just so giddy watching it because Bradley Cooper's character, the first time he takes this, nootropic and manages to find like 
his uh, perfect dose. All he does is clean his flat and fuck one woman. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, maybe I'll like make a shit ton of money on the stock market. And I just thought, I bet Jordan Peterson watched this and started taking notes. But it's not, it doesn't contain harmful intent within it, you know? No. Um, so it's bad. Uh, the, the saturation, oh my God. It's like, how on earth do we represent cinematically that he's on something? I know, turn that dial right up. Um, but you can't help but just be like, okay, fine. This is happening. I think the other kind of, um, I, I guess it's a real sore spot for me because I think every person who really likes film is desperately trying to say, oh, but I'm not like a cinephile or a cineast or like one of those pretentious film buffs. Um, mm-hmm. So fil- bad films that I can't stop thinking about are normally ones where I'm like, you're really letting the side down. Like, I can't defend this and people might think this is the kind of film that I like. Um, right. And that that crown basically belongs to Abel Ferreira. Oh, God. Okay. I've tried so many times. I watched The Addiction the whole way through and I love Lily Taylor so much. And I was really entranced by the start of it. And then I was like, no, no, no. All of those really interesting threads, they're, they're just gone now. And I find it really difficult. And I know it's all subjective, but to me, I'm like, this is a bad film. Please, everyone, stop saying about how good it is. And particularly in a sort of like art film way. I'm like, art film doesn't mean it's an excuse to be bad. <laughs> yeah, for me, I think an example of that, it's certainly in terms of a movie that I think is quite bad, but is lauded by a lot of, you know, your, your film types, is uh, Prisoners. Oh the, my God, yes, what the fuck? The, the Denis Villeneuve It's not movie. that good. It's really not. It's, Sorry, I'm, I'm getting overexcited. You, you, you finished. But yes, I am entirely with you on this. Solidarity, please continue. But that, that was a movie that I remember watching because everyone talked about how good it was and you know, it was like a big serious drama. But it's just so tedious it's so self-serious it's so especially for how pulpy the material is you know all that stuff like boxes full of snakes and uh they're just constantly beating the shit out of paul dano and everything about it just completely rubbed me the wrong way i felt the same way about sicario as well i thought sicario was just so completely empty and emily blunt is great in it but it's just so generic you know kind of army border patrol stuff you know drug war stories there's nothing in it of any that has any insight but i keep thinking about both of those movies because i have really liked a lot of his subsequent work david of subsequent work like i really loved arrival i thought the blade runner 2049 looked great and had some good ideas didn't totally work for me but i think that it's 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 better than prisoners um yeah. and i really liked dune as well so those are ones where for years and years, I always think about them because also with Prisoners and Sicario, there was a time when they were so central to like the film bro canon. Maybe people have moved on a little bit since then, but it was they were always talked about as being like the new modern classics. And I was just sitting there thinking, these are these are fucking awful. Yeah. <laughs> like that we shouldn't be tying our banners to the mast on this one, oh. <laughs> our colours to the mast on this one. It's just uh, I just found them both to be just so laughably like technically very well done roger deacon's obviously a great cinematographer but i just found like the the actual content of them 
so derisible that I just couldn't believe that this was he was being held up as like the next great auteur and then he made like three films in a row that I liked. I thought, okay, he figured it out. He figured out how to choose better scripts or whatever. Is it is it um is it his Villeneuve who did uh, Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal after yes. Christmas, right? Oh my god, that's my like I thought I could not hate uh Blade Runner twenty forty nine any more than I do because I'm definitely like looks very pretty absolutely vacant actually has some harmful stuff in it it's not just a bad film but i think actually like a wrong film um but enemy was just like oh it's a big spider oh <laughs> i just it's not that deep and i yeah. and i'm with you like i think the kind of constant search for a new modern classic particularly in the western canon is hugely frustrating because we do get very excited by things that are visually very pretty, but essentially backwards. Um, yeah. And that is a big grudge of mine because also it's like, there are incredible films out there and a lot of, uh, you know, around the world, it feels like very bad faith complexity. If that mm. makes sense. I think things generally feel like it's instead of actually pursuing the concerns of our age it is very like what's trending and then chasing that and like I enjoyed watching Sicario but you're right like story-wise it's incredibly perfunctory and I'm like Mm -hmm. guys you've got to have we not learned anything you've got to have a story (laughs) yeah it kind of gets by a lot on extremely beautiful woman is in a situation where she gets to be a badass yeah like that's a lot of what (laughs) kind of drives that movie and like beyond that i don't feel like it has a lot else to really sustain it really yeah and if it weren't for roger deakins who is the just in my eyes can do absolutely no wrong no one would watch that film (laughs) yeah because it's, you know, with the sort of Deakins and Villeneuve um, collaborations, I'm very much, I am looking at Roger Deakins' work. I am not watching a film. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of need all, all of the bits to it. Here's, speaking of Emily Blunt, Ed, wild mountain time. <laughs> Just, and then, because this is the category of, like, I think edging into the room and stuff that is so bad it's i wouldn't say good but a must watch in terms of sheer almost clickbait levels i sort of wonder whether some films are being made that are intentionally so awful that they will at least get that attention i'm talking Mm. your money plane i'm talking your is it serenity where it's like yeah serenity yeah yeah Because in terms of cynical cash grabs, I don't know, the thing about both films, and I've watched uh, pretty much all of Wild Mountain Time, all of Money Plane, and uh, have yet to find, I've yet to find serenity in every sense. Ha ha ha. But um, I know what happens in all of them because Mm -hmm. they're kind of anti-spoiler films in a way because they all have such ludicrous twists and turns in them that 
when you find out what happens, you are determined to see how it's executed. Yes, Whereas, you know, definitely. because other films, it's like, oh, don't tell me, you know, there's still sort of spoiler warning, don't tell me what happens because the unfolding of it needs to happen organically. Whereas this is like, they can't be spoiled because they're already fucking, well, wild, for lack of a better term. And these are the films that I can't stop thinking about because I think about the production manager, like <laughs> creating the schedule and like there actually being a script that people um, break down into shooting days. There's catering. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's no small operation to shoot a film. Like our experience of watching it is a blip in the ocean of time. But this is some people's jobs. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think you're right about them being anti-spoiler as well, because certainly I hadn't heard of Wild Mountain Time until I think there was an article in, I want to say Slate or Vulture or something, where the entire article was saying, you will not believe what the twist of Wild Mountain Time is. And then reading it thinking, okay, maybe I need to see this. Because I just... The, the, the thing that happens in that movie out of context is so strange and you feel like you have to to see how exactly all of that uh, comes together as well in terms of having to sit there and think about the technical aspects of, of movie making as well i think a movie which I, I actually didn't write down in my list for this because i just enjoy it too much for it to really truly fall into that is cats <laughs> because i get i get so much enjoyment from watching cats it's such a baffling movie but it's so, and it's so many things are going wrong simultaneously that it's kind of like everyone's playing a different song at the same time, but it still somehow turns out okay. <laughs> like, ac- accidentally make a beautiful song. But when you see the behind the scene footage of that, of the giant sets and everyone going around in leotards and then seeing the final and thinking about them filming that, thinking, oh, yeah, sure, this will be good when it all works out, right? The cats, the cats will look good. <laughs> Yeah, it's all, it's all going to look good, yeah? It's going to be fine. Honestly, it's, it's fine. We've got the digital fur tech. It's going to be fantastic. It's, uh, it's just... someone's job to edit out the, the anatomically correct buttholes. And when I say anatomically correct, I mean the cats, not the... Hu- oh, my God. But you're right, like, cats is one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had in a cinema, so... Hmm... Yeah, and especially for me, I saw it the day after I saw Rise of Skywalker, which was such a depressing experience that going into Cats and just allowing my mind to break was really just a wonderful experience. Well, so Rise of Skywalker I didn't put on my list just because it's it's a movie I literally haven't thought about since I watched it. <laughs> I just watched it and thought, well, that's done, isn't it? No more Star Wars for me. Um, <laughs> I think that's uh, part of it, isn't it? Like, there's another element to it, which is we are still thinking about these films. Whether it's clickbait mm-hmm. or something else, there is an element element to them because something that is forgettable is like really the kiss of death, isn't it? Or something that you wish you hadn't seen rather than films yeah. that... And I think this is it. Like The sort of films that we're talking about here are ones that make us um, perplexed. They're not films that make us angry, in some mm. degree, I like I get actually a bit sort of you know, it, 
it's entertaining to consider the very existence of them. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, sometimes one of the things to consider when trying to think about movies that are are bad is when you look at them and you think there's there are there are so you, you only need to change a few things here for this to be good. Yeah. And the movie that's at the top of my list for that is The Happening. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which uh, we alluded to earlier with the talk about the trees coming up. And I did get it right. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I think, I think that movie. I remember going to see that movie, and afterwards, I went to see it with my my sister. And afterwards, on the car ride back, we were just talking about all the things that it does that horror movies don't usually do. Like it's all set in the day. The the place of shelter in that movie is a, like a scary house. You know, at one point they need to try and hide out inside. It's doing all these really interesting things that are clearly subverting the ideas of horror movies, and it does have some very effective scares in it. But and I I I genuinely believe like it is ten percent away from being a brilliant movie. But the ten percent of it is that Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel are horribly miscast, and their miscasting immediately just like turn makes the movie a disaster because their line deliveries particularly his he like she hasn't got a great role in it so it like it's not entirely on her but he has no gift for the kind of weird off-kilter dialogue that M. Night Shyamalan has and you just think god if they had cast any two other actors in this I think this would be on a par with some of his more recent works, where he also has kind of bizarre premises, but it works because he gets performers that kind of key into the the particular wavelength that he's working on. And that's one that I find myself thinking of, because I do think it is genuine. And I think Old is maybe a more successful version of this, because that is also a horror movie that mostly takes place during the day. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I do think that that's maybe a more successful execution of some of the ideas he was exploring in The Happening. But it is one of those ones where you look at it and think, God, there's, there, there really are just like a handful of changes you would need to make to this movie for it to go from being something that people make fun of and that you know, is, is risible to something that I think really, really works well. I call those kinds of films magic eye films. Because it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you can see you're looking at the surface, but if you really squint and kind of look at it in a different way, you can see the true picture underneath, and you just come away feeling a bit dizzy and annoyed. <laughs> mm, mm. What for you would be one of those? Oh God, I feel like that's my major complaint of most films these days. Um, sounding mm-hmm. like the old timer that I am. Um, but I think the most recent example of that I can pluck out is The Humans. Um, right, yeah. With Nathaniel. Um, no, not Nathaniel, because he's Nathaniel in my head. <laughs> Richard Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Six feet under. It's a, it's a hell of a show. Amy Schumer, Beanie Feldstein, Stephen Young, um, and... There's so much beauty in it, but I think it tried so hard not to be like a straight play adaptation that it lost a lot of what it was actually the point of it. Mm. So I felt a bit um, 
almost distance from it. And I just kept thinking, I wish I'd seen this play because I think I'd have found the play much more, I think, porous in what it was trying to do. Because there's hints of how it was staged, like particularly at the very end of the film. Um, I think the performances are great. I think Amy Schumer is particularly fantastic in a dramatic role. Um, mm. And I just love Beanie Feldstein the more I see her in. And there's so many interesting elements, but I think it does feel a little bit more like, you know, it's too easily dissectable. Like, mm. it's the kind of play I would be taken to watch to study through school. And there's nothing wrong with things that can be easily interpreted. I'm all about accessibility. But I think there's something when you can see the brush marks or the seams too well that I'm like, no, I, I don't want to tear this apart. I just want to experience it as if it wasn't made. Um, mm. uh, so, yeah, that's the most recent example because I was like spending a lot of the time watching it just going, I think this is good. I think this is good. Like, I can't point out why. Like, it's not that anything is wrong. It's just not right you know yeah definitely yeah i think though the, the uh, i was saying earlier about flaws really i think the the imperfections in things are the things that really stand out and i think in movies that you like the imperfections are, are the sort of the, the lovable idiosyncrasies that just make you like it more and more like you know jaws is a great movie the shark looks fake but you know that's just like a nice funny little thing about it Whereas when it's something that you dislike, you know, even if something is technically well made, every little thing about it is just going to irritate you. You know, uh, I think the again, to go back to Prisoners, you know, Prisoners, very technically well made movie, shot nicely, edited well, et cetera, et cetera. But because I feel like fundamentally it's just such a vapid piece of filmmaking every little thing about it, you know, every odd line delivery that in a movie I liked, I would think, oh, that's an interesting choice. I just think as as signs that no one had a fucking clue what they were doing making <laughs> that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the other kind of big category I think I have of movies, ones that whenever I think about them, I don't necessarily just think about the movie, I think about some broader trend in the industry or some broader movement that i look at i just think uh you know this is emblematic of something really awful the example i have is star trek into darkness Mm. which is Mm -hmm. a very bad movie in a lot of ways but the thing is particular that i really dislike about it is the whole thing about how before it came out they they didn't say oh benedict they they denied that benedict cumberbatch was playing khan and when they revealed that he's khan in the movie it doesn't mean anything because the characters in the movie don't know who that is and and that their continuity khan's not an important character and that to me embodying the real hollowness of a lot of the mystery box filmmaking that jj abrams popularized and lots of people you know tried to copy badly and that he himself executed very poorly in that movie, or uh, Suicide Squad, the first one, not the more recent one, which also isn't very good, but isn't, isn't very good in different ways, um, where so much of it feels like the total dead end of blockbuster comic book filmmaking, 
where you introduce all of these characters who you feel like they're setting up so that maybe they'll be in other movies or you know it's all weighed down by the fact that it's part of a broad universe etc uh, etc et and it's not the worst of the current crop of, of comic book movies i don't think but i think it's the one that is most emblematic of a real brain dead approach to making those kind of movies and really emblematic of why the genre struggles to grow beyond exercises in extending the ip that these big studios own uh which is also why i've watched like the dan olsen video about the anything in suicide squad over and over again because it's a really funny video that really digs into the minutiae of why that movie falls apart on a technical level uh but also through that and he also uses it as kind of a prism to talk about just how bad editing in modern movies is as well so i that that to me i think is is the final broad category of movies that it's not so much that can't stop thinking about them but whenever i think about suicide squad or star trek into darkness i kind of think about the movie very briefly but then i'll i'll key in on those handful of things that make me think oh yeah this these are the symptoms of an underlying disease and why movies that are made on a certain scale nowadays nowadays are just so sort of mediocre yeah i i honestly don't have anything else to add to that i don't know if that's a uh darker note to end on but (laughs) so well then this episode as we end all our episodes of shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week well ed do you like data love it do you like it don't get enough of it (laughs) do you like it when it's visualized sure well and like a pie chart well funnily enough pie it's also like pudding, the pudding. I've just discovered a, a, a site called The Pudding, which does um, beautiful renderings of data visualization. Uh, you can support them on Patreon, but everything, as far as I'm aware, is pretty much free to view and interact with. Um, they, It's amazing how much more I feel like I personally can grasp a story and context and data when it's not just blocks of prose text and is actually presented in ways that I can interact with and watch things change. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm a big fan of the pudding, sweet by name, sweet by nature. I cannot recommend it enough to give it, um, you know, to check it out, folks. Um, I know I sound... <laughs> like the old time where I say I'm not but I particularly enjoyed how they represented the studies around uh, dialogue shared in, in gender and race across a huge batch of films so it's lovely to be like oh here's the data this is fun uh, so yeah that's the pudding cool I'm going to recommend a movie I mentioned at the very start of the episode because I went to see it yesterday. Licorice Pizza, the new movie by Paul Thomas Anderson. I went in with very high hopes because, you know, I love I love Paul Thomas Anderson's movies. He doesn't make, you know, we have to wait every couple of years for him to, to crank out a new one. But every single time, it feels like he's delivering something new and interesting and exciting. And this was no exception. Uh, I, I really loved it. It's so, it's so funny. It's so beautifully shot. 
Cooper Hoffman and Elena Hahn are really just so winning against the leads. They just completely own the screen. Um, it's got an amazing supporting cast. So many people in small roles. The waitress from Sun- It's Always Sunny is in it as his mum, which I was I spent the whole movie just being like, why do I recognise her? Why can't I play <laughs> she is? And then at the end being like, ah, okay. Uh, John C. Riley also has a very brief cameo in it, him, him back in the fold if the... 23 years uh since uh he was last in a pta movie uh, and and yeah it's just it's just nothing but wonderful scenes played well um it's i think if if you want kind of context for it i think it's very much in the same area as boogie nights and inherent vice not merely in the fact that they're all 70s movies set in los angeles but it, it's kind of recognizable people but with enough room for cartoonishness and there's there's lots of really fun stuff in it and yeah it's just a movie like i cannot wait to watch again and again because i think there are so many wonderful little moments and performances and things in it everything about it just is so wonderful and human and i i just think it's just fantastic so that's licorice pizza which is still in theaters here in the u.s and i think is a is on in theaters in the uk as well so if you feel safe to go to a theater's please go and see Licorice Pizza. You will have a great time. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player, and all the usual places. Rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 